As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. And it's all that we know, it's the way you lie. give all that we got, BTE builds products that you can depend on, whether it's a complete power glide transmission, a torque converter for your specific combination, or any related component or bolt-on item. The professionals at BTE and Memphis Performance have what you need to succeed. Shop online at bteracing.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's cool hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome to, or welcome back to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. Um, As I record this, um, it goes without saying we are in unprecedented and uncertain times as far as i know there is zero racing going on around the country and to be completely honest i think for most of us uh racing is the least of our worries um amid the the covid19 coronavirus um in these times jed mark and i like we've discussed this numerous times our thought is that our our role here within the podcast is more than anything else to just provide some entertainment, like uh, some reminder of what links us together as a racing community, you know, around something that we love around people that we love. Um, And, and just perhaps if nothing else, just a a brief welcome distraction. And along those lines, uh, today's episode is a treat. Um, I got an opportunity to sit down with the reigning uh, NHRA top dragster world champion, Danny Nelson, for a fun and, uh, and wide-ranging interview that uh, we'll get to 
momentarily. Um, to to that end, uh, in terms of trying to provide some entertainment, trying to provide a, a even if it's a brief escape from today's re, um, reality, we've got some really fun stuff um, planned uh, here on the Facebook feed. So you'll be seeing, in addition to the regular weekly episodes, probably uh, at least one more time a week, um, non, not your typical Sportsman Drag Racing podcast episode, but fun, entertaining stuff around racing um, from myself, Mark, and or Jed. Um, so look for those popping up in the feed and you can find um, additional content um, in addition here to the, the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast feed for those of you that are subscribed. Also on thisisbracketracing.com as well as the This Is Bracket Racing Facebook page and of course the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast Facebook page. So stay tuned to all those if you are, uh, if you have more perhaps free time on your hand and or um, you know, want to soak up all the racing content that you can and or just need a distraction from the current reality. Like we're doing our, we're going to do our best to be here for you. So along those lines, today's episode, back to Danny. Um, there's a wide ranging interview with Danny Nelson that I think it was a lot of fun on my end. Uh, I hope it's as fun to listen to the conversation as it was to participate in it. Um, and along the way here, like we covered a variety of topics. Of course, we talked about Danny's 2019 uh, championship campaign and we talked about his incredible summer run. Um, like it was, I, I had the notes in front of me when we recorded, I think he went 24 and one in NHRA top dragster competition over the span of like 43 days, something ridiculous. Right. And obviously that was the, 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 the strength that, that it was that stretch that led him to his championship. We also talked in depth about his just heavyweight battle down the stretch with Jeff Strickland. And to be completely honest, even though I have been uh, around both of them basically my entire racing life, I don't think I realized how tight the bond and connection is between Danny and Jeff. So it was really interesting to get into that. Um, and then beyond that, like we talked business, you know, obviously Danny's been in the racing industry for nearly as long as he's been racing. Um, and I think, at least for me, the, the most enjoyable aspect of this discussion was taking Danny back because obviously his career spans several decades at a high level. And uh, we got just a peek inside some of the stories from yesteryear. Some really fun stuff. Uh, I can't get enough of that. I hope that you feel the same way. Uh, one last thing before I... Um, flip this over uh, for the and basically let Danny have the reins. Uh, I do want to apologize for my voice in uh, this recording. We, we recorded this a little over a week ago and I was battling a cold and I sounded awful. I was on the verge of losing my voice. So hopefully um, it's, it's vocal enough to understand what it was I was trying to say and um, look forward to better sound quality in the future. So without further ado, um, this week's uh, interview with Danny Nelson. It's time for the big interview on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. 
All right. Joining me now on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast is the reigning NHRA top dragster world champion, Mr. Danny Nelson. Danny, thank you for taking some time to join us here on the show. Thanks, Luke. I appreciate it. Uh, obviously, congratulations are in order for an incredible season. Um, and let's start there. Let's, let's start with talking a little bit about 2019. As it ends up, it seems to be a, a back and forth weekend to weekend duel uh, with Jeff Strickland down the stretch. You end up coming out on top by <clears throat> what a, right around two rounds. It didn't feel that close down the stretch, right? Um, right. 608 points. Uh, first NHRA World Championship, just you're a few months removed from it now. When you look back on 2019, what's the first thing that you think of? Uh, the championship race and what Jeff and I went through. You know, of course, you know, uh, and, and a lot of other people know that, that he and I have been real good friends for many years. His, his father and I raced together, traveled together, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was it was really amazing being in it with him. You know, if it would have been someone in California or Florida or wherever, you know, that would have been totally different. But, you know, we, we were real good friends. And of course, when it finally ended up, uh, I was at Dallas at the national event, just watching more than anything. I'd taken my car there to ship it to Vegas in case I had to go to Vegas. You know, I still had a race left. Uh, if Jeff had passed me that weekend, that was his last race. And, and uh, then, of course, he got unlucky and, and lost first round. So that, you know, that was lucky for me, but I really hated it for him. And he called uh, early that afternoon after, you know, we both realized that, you know, what had happened. And, and we talked for two or three hours, you know, and, and he, he said, well, it's kind of, you know, he said, it's kind of strange. My dad and I were both pulling for you to win. Of course, we wanted to win too, but we wanted you to win. And I said, well, I'm the same way. You know, I couldn't, you know, people call and say, well, you want me to chase him? And I said, no, don't chase him because he will bust your butt, you know, <laughs> so don't chase him, <laughs> you know, and we left. Of course, he had the same, you know, same thing, people, you know, you know, wanting to try to run me or whatever, you know, so it, it was a lot of fun now that it's over. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, it, go it ahead. Jeff would have won also. I mean, I, I would enjoy, you know, when he won his championship a couple of years ago, you know, I was probably one of the first ones to call him you know, when he locked it up, you know, so, and we'd, I'm sure we'd both do the same thing next year, you know. No, it's so, uh, <clears throat> it's so interesting. I've talked about this a little bit on the show before being in that situation. I don't know how everybody handles that, but I have a hard time rooting against anyone. You know what I mean? Oh, like, you know, that <clears throat> ultimately for you to achieve your dreams, someone else has to fail. Isn't really the right word, but you know, they can't win. Um, right. But I think it's harder yet when you've got a relationship like that with somebody like that's such a conflicted feeling because it's one thing to say like, hey, I'd be happy either way. But, you know, I mean, you still want to win like that. Sometimes I think it's harder in those situations. I would almost rather be the one in the car watching than the one watching, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Well, that's it was, you know, it was tough uh, when, you know, this went on for like a full four, five week, six week stretch that we were back and forth. And. And I don't remember exactly. I want to say it was, uh, I don't know, it was a division two race, horse race, you know, and he had to win the race to pass me. And I was watching it on uh, uh, Drag Race TV, Drag Race for TV or NHRA.TV or whatever. I don't remember exactly even where it was. It may have been a national. But um, he ended up winning the race, you know. 
and he passed me, you know, and then I had to go to St. Louis, but, and I got lucky and won St. Louis, so I passed him back. Uh, but then when he was in Charlotte for his last race and I was in Dallas at the races, you know, I thought I'm not even going to watch it. I'm going to turn my phone, you know, I'm, I'm not going to watch it on my phone. I'm not going to watch it in the motorhome, whatever, you know, if he, if he wins, passes me, I can go to Vegas. You know, if he doesn't, then I got lucky, you know, and, uh, we were sitting in the, uh, uh, in the suite, uh, Scoggin Sticky's suite in Dallas. A uh, bunch of us watching the pros run. And, of course, you couldn't hear anything. I couldn't hear my phone, you know. And um, I looked down, I had like 70-something text messages, you know. So I thought, well, that's got to be good because I know he hadn't won yet, <laughs> you know. Good for me. So I looked down, it was, you know, everybody texted me saying congratulations and on and on, you know. Had a bunch of missed calls, but, uh, you know, I just kind of hung the phone up and turned it on silent and finished watching the races and stuff. And, and then – uh Joe Costello found out about it and he announced it, you know, and uh, so that was, you know, that's pretty neat, you know. Yeah, of all of those types of moments, you know, that, that when you look down at your phone and see the text messages when Joe makes that announcement, when you uh, <clears throat> take your pictures with the trophy at Pomona and the banquet and all the fanfare that goes with that accomplishment, yeah. what, if anything, stood out as like the moment that you'll never forget? Probably the banquet in California. I mean, that, that you know, in Hollywood, that was, uh, it was just unreal. And, and actually, you know, I mean, I'm a country boy, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of us, and I didn't really even want to go to California, you know. I mean, I haven't lost anything in California. I've been there, not to the banquet, but I've been there. And uh, uh, I was telling uh, uh, Ron Pope called me late that afternoon. I was talking about it and he said oh you're gonna love california you know nick had won the year before a couple of years ago and they went out there and he said that's the most unreal um uh, thing that you'll ever see in your life you know and and they treat you so well you know a lot of people bad mouths nhra you know how all that goes and stuff but i mean the four years that i've been in top dragster which you know i've never ran much nhra at all until that and uh, i mean 99.5 percent of the people and the NHRA has just been great, you know. Uh, of course, you're always going to have, you're not going to get along with everybody, and, you know, everybody's not going to like you or whatever, you know, and that's just the way it is. But the banquet was really, was really nice. I mean, unbelievably nice, you know. And and all the staff and stuff, the, you know, the way they guided you through everything, you've been there, you know, you know how it is. And it's, uh, that's probably the biggest thing uh, racing-wise in my life, you know was that banquet. And I, but I told Ron that night, I said, I'm not going. He said, oh, yeah, you are. He said, I will come down there and carry your ass and put you on the plane. He said, you're going. He said, you can't miss that. You know, and then I talked to David Rampy about it. He said, he said, you, he said, you got to go. He said, you know, uh, he said the first time he went, you know, it was unreal, just like it is. And, and he said, but he said, if I win this year, I'll go again. You know, he said, I've gone every time I've won the championship. You know, so it's just, it's that great of experience. It's something that I wish everyone could do, you know, uh, you know, be in the banquet like that. I had a bunch of friends go with me and, and it was, uh, uh, it was a surreal experience. 
That's cool. I'm uh, I had heard rumblings that <clears throat> that you had talked about not going, and and I understand that too. But I'm glad that uh, <clears throat> Ron and David and whoever else got to you and kind of changed your mind. And that, it sounds like you are now too. Like that's an experience that yeah. everybody okay. that does it at this level should should enjoy. <clears throat> yeah. Um. All right. Let's focus a little bit on your season itself because I feel like this has been shouted at the rooftops like everybody knows the story but <laughs> your season obviously didn't get off to a stellar start and right. the, the bulk of your points earning opportunities came in a flash I mean it's I was doing the research this morning and I thought it was a six week eight week span where you really mm -hmm. did the damage but it was really right. 43 days 43 days that yeah. <clears throat> uh, from start to finish like that's not obviously all of your season but within 43 days which is six weekends of racing four event wins uh the lone blemish on your resume was semifinal loss at indy yeah 24 and one over the course of those six weeks i know the obvious question is <clears throat> i think what? someone else has, i think someone else has done that before i think i'm looking at him <laughs> that, that, that's how yeah, no, I've I've been on a on a similar run. Uh, <laughs> it, it didn't end up in a championship season, but um, at what point? I guess the obvious question is like, what changed? What triggered it? The I started drinking. I believe, you know, uh, I've had, and I've just, you know, for the past years, uh, my eyes have been getting worse, and I just blamed it on old age. You know, uh, I mean, I'm 63 years old. You know, time for stuff to start going away, and it has. You know, but uh, when I found out I had cataracts and got one of those fixed, I mean, it was just a difference in day and night. And, and it wasn't so much on the starting line, it was the finish line. I mean, it, it, you know, something close to me at the finish line going 250 mile an hour was just a blur. You know, I mean, I gave up the stripe. I, you know, I'd take too much. I, you know, just couldn't, I couldn't get the finish line down. And, and after I'd done that, you know, now, 99% of the time at the finish line, I've done a, a real good job after that. Now, I may go back to the start of this season and be just like I was. But, you know, of course, it depends on who you race to. You, you know that as well as anyone. You know, you have to be lucky enough to get on the ladder right, you know, with the guys that are not going to put, you know, seven, 8,000 packages on you. You know, if you do that, there's nothing you can do. You know, you can't win a championship if you run into those guys every year, you know. But, you know, I got lucky to get to have good runs when I needed them. And when I didn't have such a good run, you know, the other guy just couldn't beat me. So, you know, that's, and that's what it takes. I mean, you know, there's, you know, as well as I do, there's a lot of luck involved, you know, and, and, in in our sport, um, and, and not really, it's, it's the, uh, the luck of getting beside of not getting beside the guy that's going to have a 5,000 package, you know, I mean, bracket racing, anything, anything we've done all of our lives, uh, uh, it's just how you get beside in the lanes <laughs> that makes a difference. At uh, at what point in that run, because it started at Bowling Green, right? Mm. <clears throat> at what point in that did it become apparent to you, like, not only am I riding this heater, like, I, I, I really have a legitimate chance to win the championship? Right. Probably after, when I left home going to Bowling Green, um, I told my wife, I said, I, and I was looking to get in the top 10. I mean, I was at like 15th or something going into Bowling Green. You know, I wasn't completely left out, but, you know, I had to do something to get in the top 10. Uh, and I told her when I left, I said, I said, I'm going to Bowling Green and I'm going from there to Indy. 
And if I do any good at those two races, then I'm going to go on to Norwalk because it was, you know, four days after Indy. So, you know, of course, then I won Bowling Green. So and went to Indy and, and uh, went red in the semifinals against Pete uh, in Indy. Uh, so that, you know, pretty much that got me in the top 10, you know, pretty much locked in the top 10. And, but I went on to, uh, uh, to Norwalk. And then when I won Norwalk, you know, well, that put me up in the top three or four. And then I've still got three or four races left. I think Jeff had four races left and I had three when I really realized that it could very well be he and I, because two or three of the guys behind us were already out of races, you know? So I thought, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, up until, uh, probably two races to go. There was one other guy, one or two other guys that had a legitimate, you know, if they went out and we don't do anything, they get past us, you know, but it was, I think there was, I had three races to go. Like saying Jeff had four, you know, so interested to hear what's going on mentally because from the outside I would think <clears throat> like that stretch Bowling Green Indy Norwalk that happens so quick and things are rolling and you got that momentum and everything's cool um yeah. at some point though I don't know if it if it hit Columbus St. <coughs> Louis between the the pressure of the championship chase and just the idea because from the outside you think man Danny's just got it rolling you know what I mean like things are easy and and having you know been through something similar there are moments it feels that way but at least for me there were moments where I was like man what are the odds you know what I mean like you're not gonna win three races in a row or something no. like you start kind of talking yourself out of it I'm just wondering right. if was that was that the case for you as well oh yeah I mean I didn't go you know after uh, you know Went in Bowling Green, running up and or up semis and Andy, and then, you know, went in Norwalk. That was, you know, unreal, just that part of it, you know. And then I go to Columbus and win Columbus and then St. Louis and win St. Louis, you know. But after after that third win, you know, I just thought, this has got to run out, you know. I, I, you know, and I, and I would have been glad just to finish in the top ten, you know. I mean, I've been in the top ten before, you know, and, and close – one year and then the other two years I was I think 15th and 13th or something you know I was close to top 10 but uh you know there's a little bit of an incentive just to make the top 10 uh, and um you know that's what I was going for and, and then of course when I saw that I could win it you know I thought yeah there's no way I'm gonna <laughs> you know uh gonna keep winning you know like we've been doing I mean it's just you know the, the odds are way and not in my favor you know but uh uh, you know, it just turns out good sometimes, I guess. You know. No, and it was <clears> – <throat> obviously, it's easy for me to say watching from the sidelines, it was just so cool to watch you and Jeff go back and forth because it was just yeah. seemingly <clears> – <throat> now you look back at it on paper and everybody had their blemishes, but seemingly it was you would win this week, Jeff would win the next week, Danny would win the next week, you know what I mean, just back and forth. So. Right. <clears throat> um, going back in – over the course of, of your career, which is illustrious, like Hall of Fame, Hall of Fame career without question. You've been doing this a long time. I'm just yeah. wondering that <clears throat> that run, is there anything prior in your years of racing? Because I know Rock and Roll Express was dominant, right? right. Um, is there anything that compares to that, that dominance? Uh, I've won several races like in a month before, you know, 
Uh, I mean, you know, back in the early 90s, you know, late 80s, early 90s, really all of the 90s. You know, several times I'd go to a three-day, 5,000-man bracket race and win a couple of them. You know, and then one time at Crossroads, Tennessee, I won all three of them. You know, uh, but, you know, it's – I mean, and bracket racing is, is of course, as you well know, is a lot tougher now than it was then, too. You know, uh, a few of us kind of had it figured out early, you know, uh, and, and we uh, we done real well, you know, bracket racing. Now, you know, there's so many – I mean, it's just uh, – well, you know how it is. <laughs> you know, it's like getting beside the wrong guy. You know, you, you have an 8,000 package and you're going home, you know, where back in those days, you know, of course that could happen, but it wasn't near as likely as it is today. No, and I mean, it's all relative. Like <clears throat> you're and, and the handful of guys that you're talking about, dominance in that age was every bit as impressive at the time, but it, right. is, it feels different now. It, it feels like, such a higher percentage of the category in any category is right. capable of winning. Oh yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, we, you know, we've talked, uh, uh, in the past, uh, uh, bunch of racers, you know, when we would go to say in the late eighties, early nineties, when we go to Florida, you know, well, there'd be 150 to 200 guys there from all around the country, all good racers, but you could pretty much pick out, 10 to 15 guys that were going to win some races or, you know, do good, you know, and, and, you know, sometimes the guys that you didn't even know would come in there and good racers, you know, we just didn't know them, you know, but uh, the, the people that travel that whole complete winter series back in those days, all I went to ever won since 1987 until they pretty much shut them down here, what, five or six years ago, still having some, some stuff, but not like it used to be, you know, it was a three week journey back then. Um, but, uh, and of course it was a lot of fun then too, you know, I mean, the, going to the Hollywood, uh, the, the, the holiday Inn. everybody stayed at the holiday Inn. nobody had motorhomes back then. And there was a bar there and, and, and a, they had live music on Friday and Saturday night bands and, Stuff. So it was just a big party also, you know, but, you know, at that time you, you could, I mean, in the eighties, late eighties, early nineties, we didn't have to be at the race track until three in the afternoon. And it was done by 11, you know, cause there was no buybacks, no double entries, no nothing, you know, uh, I mean, we were done. So you had plenty of time to, to party or go shopping or go to the beach or whatever you wanted to do. You know, it was it was a lot of fun. You know. All right, now I'm, I'm hesitant to ask this because we got to keep it clean here on the podcast. But I want to hear <clears throat> one good story from the Holiday Inn. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> well, I get dirty. I don't know if I can. You know, uh, I guess the, the probably the funniest thing was we were all setting out behind. Uh, and actually, I think this was after it became the double tree. Much of us were sitting on the bar, you know, after the race that night talking and where some music was going and it was, it was packed. And, uh, here comes Danny Bastinelli running across the lawn, uh, from the back part of the, towards the bar, you know, and there was a, a hot tub and he dove in the hot tub, you know, and just, I mean, it was so funny. He dove in and just popped right back out on the other side on his feet. You know, just stuff like that. There's all kind, all the time there was something going on. And we were in the bar one night, and it was real late. I mean, it was 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. 
and the bar was just packed, you know, of course, a lot of people had went to bed, but there's still a lot of us up, you know, drinking and, and talking and stuff. And, and I want to say it was Larry Bird, a NBA player came in and I mean, he looked like he was 10 feet tall, you know, and a couple of guys got up there and got to talking to him and they, they were drunk, you know, and it, I don't even remember who it was. Now I, I knew at the time who it was. You know, I don't remember, but uh, he got mad at him. I mean, he was ready to kill him, <laughs> you know, because they were, you know, talking about how tall he was. And, you know, he, I'm sure he heard that all the time, you know. But this, there was a lot of weird stuff went on at the Holiday Inn of the Doubletree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I've heard some of the stories. I think we could probably fill several podcast episodes just with any Bastianelli stories alone. So. Oh, yeah, no <laughs> doubt. Bowling Green. Uh, I don't know if you've heard this one or not. We were, uh, uh, him and Jim Harrington were together at Bowling Green. And this was when everyone stayed at the Best Western, I believe it was, a couple of exits up. You know, like I say, very, very few people had motorhomes, you know. Some people camped out, had tents and stuff, you know. And they were stay at the racetrack in their tents, but everyone stayed at the, at the Best Western. And uh, my ex-wife and I were sitting in Denny's that morning. Uh, one morning and here comes Jim Harrington in and he come over and sat down with me, you know, and I said, what's up, man? He said, I just got out of jail. I said, what? He said, well, not actually. I didn't go to jail, but Bassinelli did. And they had went to, they had been out to a strip club or a bar or whatever, you know, the night before and uh, uh, left there and went to uh, uh, Waffle House to eat. Of course, you know, Jim didn't drink. I mean, he might have one drink. He, you know, you'd never seen him real drunk or anything. And, and Bassinelli, it didn't take him but one to be really wild, you know. So they were in Waffle House and, and uh, ate and, and came out. And uh, Danny wanted a newspaper. So he put some change in the newspaper rack, you know, which I don't even think we have those anymore. But he put some change in it that wouldn't open. So he just picks the newspaper rack up, puts it in the back of his truck and takes off. Well, someone said him, they called the police and police stopped them, you know? And, uh, he said, well, it, it took my money and I wanted a paper. So, you know, he said, you know, we'll take it back to them. And, and, you know, one thing led to another. And, and, uh, uh, Harry said that, uh, uh, that Danny and one of the police officers had kind of got into it and stuff. So they were going to take him to jail. So they put him, they put him in the back seat of the car, um, uh, and Jim was out talking, you know, and Jim's real sensible. He, you know, real, was a real, real nice guy, you know, and, um, uh, I lost you. <laughs> Someone you're, called. Good. you're good. I got you. Yeah. But, uh, uh, Jim was talking to the police officer outside and, you know, he said, I just about had him talked into letting me take Danny. We were going to take the, uh, machine back. You know, set it back up for them, pay them for any of their troubles, you know, whatever. Uh, and he said, about that time, the back glass come flying out of the police car. Then he had kicked the back glass out of the police car. Of course, he went to jail. <laughs> yeah. And Jim came in and was telling me about that. And, and he was needing money to get Danny out of jail. He said, Danny has some money in his trailer at the racetrack. I think it was like $1,500 or something. I said, well, I, ain't, I don't have that much. I said, I've got some. I'll give you what I've got. 
So, you know, I gave him what I had, and then he got some other from other people and went and got him out of jail. Of course, he paid us back. But that was a pretty wild, you know, that was just kind of how stuff went back then. <laughs> you know, it was it was not shocking to be asked for bail money on Sunday morning. Huh? Oh no, no. <laughs> yeah. no, that was kind of a pretty much a not an everyday occurrence, but probably a a yearly occurrence. You know, this uh, this is actually something that I don't <clears throat> I don't remember having this conversation with you at any point. How did this all start for for Danny Nelson? The racing uh, itself. Like, what's your earliest racing story? itself? When I was real small, uh, there's a, a little track about 25 miles from Batesville, where I still live, uh, Newport, Arkansas. Uh, and my, my dad took me to the races when I was eight, nine, ten years old. And he was actually good friends with EJ and Don Biggers, which ran funny cars, you know, back back in that day. And uh, so we, we went to Newport a few times, and, and EJ and Don would have match races and stuff down there, you know, back then. And, and uh, a guy named Ray Sullins had a uh, funny car called a Dixie Jumper. And then Sonny Whalen from Newport had one called the Outlaw, which they were, you know, uh, straight axle. They weren't really the funny cars like EJ and Don had, but that's what they called them anyhow. But anyhow, and I just, I just liked it, you know. And uh, uh, then when I got old enough to start driving and, things you know I bought an old uh, actually my dad won a 56 Ford uh, uh, Fairlane 500 292 three speed in the floor he wanted that poker game and brought it home to me when I was like 14 and there was a, a gravel road in front of our house and that's the only place I could drive it you know well I wore the tires out every two weeks you know I had to go try to find some used tires to put back on it. <coughs> and finally broke an axle in it on a dirt road but uh you know that's kind of how i got started and then of course when i got a little bit older and got to uh, uh you know got through school and went to work and stuff i, I started racing a little bit and and, uh, uh, and the, the biggest thing that i miss about my whole career is my dad got killed in a car accident when i was 20. i mean i had just started racing you know traveling a little bit you know stuff like that you know nothing to the extent of what we've you know what i've done in the past or today you know with the race car shop and and you know racing is you know 100 percent my business whether it's building or racing itself you know so you know he would he would really enjoy that and that's that's probably the worst thing that i hate about my uh lifetime is not being able to have him along and i and i know you went through some summer with your dad you know in the past and that's uh you know, that that's, was probably the, one of the worst parts of my life. You know? Yeah, it sounds like he would have uh, enjoyed yeah. all of this. Oh, he would have. He, you have you know, like, I mean, like now, you know, you know, doing like the, you know, the championship stuff, you know, winning a championship, you know, that would have just been, of course, you know, it, it was unreal for me and it would have been unreal for him also, you know. What, um, <clears throat> like back in your uh, early days of racing, was there – any single event that stands out as kind of, I don't want to say putting you on the map or that moment where you thought I'm, I'm good at this, you know, or, or I could, you know, whatever the thought process was. Well, I, I won the first year that I went to Florida was in 1987 to the winter series. We had Orlando and then West Palm and then back to Bradenton. Orlando was just two days. Uh, 
George West Palm was five, and I think Bradenton was three back, to, you know, in, in 87. That was the first year that I traveled. Now, I traveled, you know, 200 miles, 300 miles from, from home, southeast, you know, Georgia, Alabama, and things. And, and it was probably in, uh, you know, and I had met, I knew Ron Folk, Randy Folk, Johnny LaBoose, David Rampey, you know, from racing out there, Sammy Smith, uh, you know, a bunch of guys that, that won a lot, you know. And I became, and I won some, you know, some of those races that I went to in Georgia and Alabama and stuff. That was when I was going and staying with Strick, with Don, Jeff's dad. Uh, I would go to his place on like Thursday and we'd race Friday and Saturday and, and then I'd come home on Sunday, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, got to, I met quite a few people, you know, back then. And, and I done, you know, I won some, you know, of course, back then a, a big race was 1500 you know, I mean, that was, we'd travel, you know, three or 400 miles for $1,500. Um, and, uh, but it, the first year that I went to, uh, to Florida for the winter series, uh, my ex-wife and I went and we went to Orlando and I didn't do any good. Uh, we went to West Palm. I don't think I won a round at West Palm, you know, of course it was quarter mile and I had never raced quarter mile, you know, I mean, that was my first time to race quarter mile. And uh, uh, not saying that made any difference. I mean, I just got my butt busted, you know. But uh, uh, I told my wife, like, the fourth day of West Palm or something, I said, we're going to stay here and race, you know, the last day, and then we're going home. I'm not even going to Brayton. You know, I, I can't do any good here, you know. And uh, she said, well, let's go on to Bradenton and, and just stay a couple of days. And if you don't do any good, you know, we'll see Bradenton. We've got a couple of days off. Uh, and we can go to the beach and, you know, go out and eat, and whatever. And I said, okay, we'll go. So we went, and I beat Steve Cohen in the finals the first night at Brayton. So, of course, then I was kind of hooked up, you know, on the Florida series. But uh, but that's probably the, the race that got a lot of people, you know, a lot of the more or less what I call semi-pro bracket racers or professional bracket racers or whatever we were back then, you know, um, everybody had jobs, you know, it wasn't, we weren't making a living at it, but you know, Edmund and Scotty were, were real world. Edmund was Scotty. I don't, I don't remember when Scotty really got going real hard. Cause I remember probably in the early nineties going to Paris, Texas and Edmund and Ed, his dad were there racing, you know, and, and I believe, I don't remember where we were at. I think it was Paris. And this, like I said, I don't remember for sure, but Scotty had just started racing. Yeah. And that, I believe he was in a roadster or something, but anyhow, the, the first race that I was at, and I think it was pretty close to the first big race that he had been at, you know, he, he wrecked, just hit the wall or something, didn't hurt, you know, didn't hurt nothing, nobody or nothing, you know. Uh, and I think that that's when was really the first time that I knew Scotty, of course, he was real small. I'm sure he wasn't 16, you know, uh, and uh, and that's where I really got to know Edmund and Ed, you know, uh, and then like I say that, that deal in Florida, you know that that uh, let me get to know a lot of the guys from the Northeast and you know from all over the country, you know, that that came to those events, you know. In that time frame for you, that was all in the Camaro, right? Uh, no, I had a, I had a Camaro and a dragster. Okay, I had both. Okay. Yeah. 
<clears throat> when I had a, had a ramp truck that I hauled with all the Camaro on, and then I had a 24 foot Statham. I'm sure you you may remember Statham trailers. Yes, sir. it was a it was a six foot wide, six foot tall, 24 foot long steel enclosed trailer. It was a horse trailer. That's what they made were horse trailers, but they but they built them and completely covered them, you know, and it was all steel. Well, that was the trailer that I had, and I called the dragster and it, and then pulled it behind the ramp truck. Yeah. Did uh, did you ever race a dragster that you didn't build, or when did the when did the business come into play? I started building dragsters actually in '87. I was okay. uh, there was a I bought the first dragster that I bought. I ordered it from Billet Race Cars out of California, uh, and it was just a base chassis body, brand housing. You know, uh, I had I got I got a I got a wing put on it and down there and a wheelie bar, you know, and I've been putting a, a 355 small block in it. <laughs> you know? So wheelie bar didn't really do me any good and all the wing down slow me down, but it was, it looked cool, you know, uh, but uh, I raced that for a couple of years traveling and, and also had the Camaro. I had a couple of Camaros before the, the red one that everybody really knows, you know, you guys remember the things uh, I had a, Chevy two and a Camaro and a Surveyor. I had several cars before that when I was just more or less traveling locally, you know, and racing. But uh, uh, that was in the that was in the good old days. <laughs> yeah. Were you uh, how how I because my 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 memory or my my perception of that time is that uh, having two cars, racing two cars, was very uncommon. Like, were you, yeah. you, do you remember being among the first to do that? Right. Yeah. Yeah, we would, uh, I would go to probably in the, about that same time, 87, 88, I started going to Johnny Labusa's. Um, I would leave here like Thursday morning and we would race like Dallas, Georgia, Thursday night, uh, Gadsden, Alabama, Friday night, Birmingham, Saturday night. And then come back to Memphis and race on Sunday, and I'd come home because I'm a hundred miles from Memphis. But I'd done that for week in, week out. I mean, and that was when John Jr. was a baby. Um, you know, I, I don't know really how old he was, but I know he was. I mean, he's an '87. I, I don't know when he was born or anything. You know, but I, the best, the best of my recollection, he was six, seven, eight years old. You know, uh, which was about like Jeff was when I was going to Don's. You know, a lot. And some weeks I would go to Don's or some weeks I'd go to Johnny's, you know, cause I could travel and, you know, we could race for, you know, a thousand dollars a night to $2,000 a night, just about every, you know, three or four times a week, you know, and that's, and I had two cars when I was doing that. So, uh, like Johnny and I would have, he had a ramp truck and a, and a trailer with his road runner and, and I think the laser or something on it. And then I had the Camaro and the dragster, you know, and I think at that time, I think David had, Rampy had a couple of cars at that time, you know, racing two cars. And there was a couple of other people doing it, but there wasn't many racing two cars, you know. Of all of those uh, trips and, and crisscrossing the, the country and the some of the places that you raced at, I, I don't know if, if you can select one, but could you pinpoint one facility that you, when you just look back and you go, what in the world? Is that? I mean, you, you've probably been to some dandies, uh, right? There's a lot of those. <laughs> a lot of those. The, the best thing, and, and I and I don't recall the name of it, but I know we were there was uh, uh, there were seven or eight of us traveling 
and I don't remember exactly where we were at, uh, but it was like a Memorial Day or Labor Day weekend. So we were going to get to race like five or six times that weekend. You know, we started on Thursday. Uh, and we went to, we were in Knoxville, Tennessee on Monday. We'd driven all night from, I want to say Birmingham or Dallas, Georgia or somewhere. We'd driven all night, uh, me, Johnny LaBouche, Dave Rampey, Sammy Smith, and Jackie Mead, I believe, and Doug Harper, you know, several of us have traveled together like that when we were going from race to race. And and we drove all night and got to to Knoxville like, uh, and I believe Ike Hamlin and Ron Folk was with us, you know, before Ike passed away. And uh, uh, we drove all night and got to Knoxville like nine o'clock in the morning and they were just starting time runs, you know, for that, that day's race. Well, we ran that race and I don't remember, uh, but, and then that night they had a race somewhere in Alabama and I don't remember the name of it, but we pulled in this little track and the grass where we had to park, it was, you know, it was a real small track. Um, and there were several cars there because it was like a 1500 or 2000 win race, you know, well, we had to park out in the grass. I mean, and the grass was a foot tall. You know, well, I'm in the dragster in the Camaro, and the Camaro set pretty low. You know, of course, you know how low the dragster was. But I had to drive through the grass to get up in the staging lanes, and then I get up there and, and back up to a burnout. And uh, and the starting line was on a piece of sheet steel. It was a steel starting line. I'm sure you've heard of that place, but I don't remember. I've been there. The name of it. <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken, that's Bayleton Bayleton Drag Strip. Yeah. Yeah. Is used that to call it, yeah, we used to call it the yeah. skillet. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that was probably the weirdest kind of thing I've ever, you know, but it worked pretty good. I mean, of course, we wasn't there as fast as we are now, you know. Yeah, I remember but, the first year that I went to Florida. Uh, oh, gosh, I can't think of his name. I know it real well, uh, from Florida. He had a dragster. There was, I mean, in 87, the first year I went to Florida, there were maybe 10 to 15 dragsters there out of 200 cars. Jim Carlton, see guy's name, Jim Carlton. He had the fastest dragster on the property. He went 822, you know. And, I mean, he was, you know, that was freaking flying. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, I think my dragster went like 920s quarter mile, you know, uh, 19s right in that area. When I, when I ran Cohen that night, I think I was dialed like 15 or 18 or something in the 19s, you know, and Cohen was like eight seventy. That was when he was super comfortable champion and stuff, you know, back in those days. And and that's as fast as his car would run, you know, it was 870, 880. You know, he was running super, super comfort, quick rod. I all right. But, uh, yeah, those were the, those were the good old days. Of course, this will be a good old day in the future, hopefully, you know, or this year, you know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> back to uh, to Top Dragster, you you'd mentioned a little bit talking about eye surgery and, and, and just some of the, the, the challenge that goes into that category. But <clears throat> for those that have not uh, maybe competed in Top Dragster or certainly at the speeds that you're going, what is maybe the biggest mm, – hurdle or, or something that you have to think about in that category that the average bracket racer like it would just blow their mind you know what i mean like something that maybe you know now that you didn't right. five years ago 
it's just the speed, you know. I mean, and, and Dr. Reister, you know, in rocket racing, uh, four or five years ago, six years ago, whatever it was, I won a 25 grander at, at Indy, won a few plays to Jeg's deals. And the best I was on the tree was 002, and the worst I was was nine, you know, 009 out of seven, eight rounds, whatever it was, you know, one or 25 grander. Uh, and top dragster, you can't, the speed of these cars, you have to have wheel speed. You know, I mean, the, the tires have to turn. Well, you can't be, I mean, sometimes you'll see some guys, you know, put a run together of four or five passes or something and be, you know, real good, you know, teens or double O or teens, you know. But, you know, if you get a little bit too much wheel speed right at the hit, you know, that affects your action time. You know, and that's what, I mean, I was pulling my hair out. You know, why can't I hit the tree, <laughs> you know, and stay where I want to be, you know. And then, and then you know, uh, I got kind of familiar with the data loggers and stuff. Uh, and I'd look at my, at my drive shaft RPM. Well, right when the trans brake released, the tire would turn, you know actually before the car ever moved and you could see a spike right at the trans brake release in the drive shaft RPM, then it would drop back down. Well, you know, I got thinking, okay, that when I would do that, I'd be third, you know, and then you can't set up on that because if you don't get that wheel speed, you're going red. You know, that, that's the biggest, um, uh, thing in, in top dragster that, that I've seen, you know, and just, and just the speed, you know, um, you know, I've been 248 miles an hour, you know, uh, of course that was back before they went to, you can't go faster than six flat, you know, but you know, all the time I'm 230 and above, you know, uh, and you know, like the finish line is, uh, uh, you know, when you go to a division, which mainly I run three and four, which are more or less has the faster cars, you know, around the country. Uh, so you don't get many big spots, you know, but I remember the first time that, uh, and actually I ran Mia Tedesco at Bowling Green in one of my cars and she was dialed like 670. No, 770. 770, yeah. And I'm dialed 6 flat or 605 or whatever it was, you know. Well, I mean, coming on a thousand foot, I thought there's no freaking way I'm going to catch her. And I actually caught her and got the lift before the finish line. Now that's how hard I was coming off, you know, <clears throat> and, and got like in Baderville. I think that was the, the slowest car that I, at that time, that was the slowest car that I had ran, you know, in eliminations. Uh, but, you know, and you, you've done it, you know, how, um, uh, you know, what 60, 70 miles an hour, a quarter mile especially will do to you. You know, I yeah, remember the first, the first top director race I went to, which was five years ago, six years ago now, I guess. Uh, I went to, uh, and you and you were there, uh, Silver Dollar in Georgia. Because uh, I went there, I was going to start running top drags for the next year, and that was the, like the last race. We were on our way, and you were to, to Florida for the Winter Series. So I go there, and I'm going 680, 683. Uh, with my root blower deal that I bracket raced, you know, and I qualified 17th. Well, I got to run um, uh, Alan O'Brien first round. You know, he went six flat, you know, 
and we go out Sunday morning or whatever, and, and the temperature has dropped 50 degrees or whatever, you know, I mean, it's just, people are going, you know, 1500s under, you know, they're dialing. And, uh, and my car had went 683, like every qualifying run, you know? So I go up there and I thought, well, I don't know how much I'm going to pick up. I don't, you know, I'm just going to dial 83. I'll just have to drive it. So when I left the starting line, I reached up and undone my Hans device where I can turn my head around <laughs> yeah. and uh, turn around and got to, got to Washington for Allen, you know, and I mean, I couldn't find him, couldn't find him. And I went to rip on the throttle probably at, you know, seven, 800 feet, you know, and, and then, but when I did see him, it was like, now he's in front of me, you know, but luckily it was, I took, I killed, uh, I went like 730 something, 160, uh, and got there by 1,000. <laughs> you know, and the, the announcer, of course, he was, you know, oh, I killed, you know, 30 miles an hour or whatever, take 1,000. You know, I got lucky and got there about 1,000. Yeah, because with the blower combination, they could hear you counting away, you know, <laughs> ripping the throttle. He had, he had missed the tree a little bit. And when he went around me, uh, he had sparks flying out in another car. Of course, I didn't know what it was, you know, and uh, got back and we were parked real close together. And uh, he walked up there and congratulated me on winning. So he said, you like to let me get by. I said, yeah, I know it. And uh, I said, what happened? He said, he said, that thing shook. It broke the wheelie bar off. And I was dragging the wheelie bar all the, all the way down the racetrack. You know, but just, it, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, it, it is a lot of fun. From the, uh, from the outside, it's amazing how far the class has come just in those six years, you know, that, that oh, you've yeah. been doing in terms of the speed, if nothing else, has it felt that way from the inside as well? Or has it just kind of been the natural progression of racing? Like everybody goes faster, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, the first year that I ran it and that, uh, 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 I had a root blower deal and I could go high six forties, you know, low six fifties. Uh, and, you know, the first first half of the year, and that was the first year that there was a national championship. That's when I started running it. Uh, and um, two of the races at the end of the year, I qualified 32nd, you know, at 640-something. And now uh, that was in Division Three, you know, <clears throat> which was for sure the fastest division back then. But, you know, and then it, and then it just progressively got faster and faster. Of course, the next year I could go, 620s and then the following year i could go 580s you know and of course you know you can't back up you know <laughs> i can i mean i can go 580s right now even though we got a that's the reason i'm running high gear you know because uh, i can still run big mile an hour and and uh, uh but you know you can't slow it down and go 630s now of course like indy was you know the bump was 623 which is surreal and and it'll be it'll be that or faster this year yeah, for sure, for sure. If what, we get uh, on it. <laughs> yeah, right. <clears throat> what um, at what point? You may have said it earlier, and I missed it. At what point did you start the business and, and begin building cars to sell? Uh, oh, building the cars. Uh -huh. Yeah, in '87. '87. Yeah. So yeah, when I when I went to Florida for that for that race in '87 to the Winter Series. I had a, a guy in Memphis, uh, Randy McGee, had actually built me a car that year, you know, uh, a dragster. And he was, he'd done his TRP race cars. He'd done four or five or six cars, you know. Uh, just, he had a, I think he worked at a 
car dealership and he was doing it at his house, you know, well, he built me a car and, and then he built two or three other guys. And then I think the next year he built Dave Drampy one. Well, I had ordered another new car from him right when I ordered that one, you know, <clears throat> or maybe mid year or something. I told him, I said, I want it where I can have it ready. You know, I want it the first of October so I can have it ready to go to, for two drags to go to Florida, you know, and I'd got me up. 28 foot trailer, regular size trailer where I can put two cars side by side. Well, they didn't get it done. Yeah. And I'd already given him like $2,000 or something. So, you know, when I, I went to Florida and came back and when I got back, uh, you know, he had went through some hard times and stuff, and, you know, nothing against him. I mean, it was hard times back then, you know, and uh, <coughs> so I thought I can do this. I'll just build my own. I mean, I had a 30 by 30 shop behind my house, you know, where I worked on my race cars. So I built a jig. I went and bought welders. I, you know, had never taken welded in my life, you know, and just started. I mean, I learned on my own, you know, and, uh, and that's how I got started. And I, and I didn't start it as a business. I was going to build my own car. Well, the first car that I got done, that was about the time Brian Folk started racing, you know, before, before Nick, uh, and, uh, uh, so Brian wanted it, so I let him have it, you know, and then it went on for probably two years. I'd get one just about done and somebody want to buy it. So I'd sell it, you know, and cause I mean, I was, I was in the car business saying, I knew, you know, I'm, I'm going to make money when I sell this thing, you know? So, uh, and that's really how it got started. I didn't start doing it as a business. You know, and then it just kind of graduated up to what we've been, you know, the last few years or whatever. When did you start doing it full time? Uh, 90, 93, 92, 93, I quit the car business. I mean, I got so busy, people want cars, you know, and of course I had help. And then well, actually just building up uh, where I'm at now, I've got four buildings. Uh, one of them 7,500 foot, that was the building that I first started in when I went full time, I bought this place and then I built three other buildings here since then, you know, wow. uh, you know, we've got some, I've got the motorcycle shop next door. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife actually runs it, you know, so. What uh, do you have? You may have an exact figure, but I'm sure you have an idea. 30 plus years in business now, like how many cars have you put out? I really don't have any idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, really, I, I have a, I have a, filing cabinet here behind me that is uh it's two drawers like a uh commercial filing cabinet and it is completely packed full of file folders well i haven't used file folders in 15 years since the computer got going you know and it, and it is completely packed i mean i've got i've got folders in there from the car that brian bought from the card johnny senior laboose bought you know um Ron Folk, I count well, you know, everybody back then, you know, and, uh, but I really haven't, you know, I really have no idea. No idea. <clears throat> it's going to be fun. We do, we do times. 20, we do 25 to 30 cars a year now. Mm-hmm. Now back then I had one time I had 11 employees. Now I've got, I've got two plus myself. Uh-huh. You know? uh, and, uh, well, actually I've got three, uh, beside myself, but, um, uh, you know, back then we would have, you know, we would do 50 cars a year. I mean, we'd turn out a car a week, you know, and, and then of course the economy slowed down, you know, and I had 
let people go and you know we weren't selling as many cars you know plus other builders got in it you know and the competition got got more and and uh you know i like it better right now doing 20 to 30 cars a year than trying to do 50 or 60 you know yeah i could see that <clears throat> what um what about the 2020 season i assume your plans are more of the same uh, as far yeah. as as far as your own racing yeah yeah i was i was going to be struggling to go to houston this coming weekend but they canceled it you know i was going to try to make it <laughs> that's how close i am with my car uh but you know now i've got till i've got another month yeah know? right who knows we're actually gonna, we're hope we hope to we're some of us going to uh, talking about renting the track at, at dallas uh the first of april uh-huh. uh first again in april and going down there testing because i've got I've got four new cars that we've, well, three new cars plus mine that we built this winter, turnkey top reactors, you know, and, and we need the place to go test those because I want to be there. They were all going to be in Houston, you know, but now we're not having Houston. So all similar combinations or no? Uh, yeah. Uh, centripetal superchargers. One of them is pro charger and we've done three vortex superchargers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then plus I've got, my car here that I sold from last year uh, after it actually got bought the car back in October or whatever. Uh, I already had the engine and transmission out of the sold. So then he decided he wanted me to put him, wanted to put up. So we built him a new engine transmission or, you know, got it and installed it. Uh, we actually finished it up. I finished it this weekend, you know. But, uh, for your um, top dragster entry, <clears throat> combination but mainly unchanged just new pipe or what are you doing differently yeah yeah everything's new i mean you know new new pipe uh, same basic combination that i've had the last couple of years uh, gonna be a high gear only deal but really the only thing i changed i went to comsync uh i'm not using their efi but i'm using their ignition and their data logger stuff and then you know maybe next year we'll, i'll just i mean i'm 63 years old and i, I told ryan mickey the from ComSync, I said, I don't know anything about EFI. I know it's great. You know, I know it's good. I know it's not real hard. I said, but I don't want to learn it. You know, I mean, I'm 63. I, I don't want to learn something new like that. <laughs> you know, a carburetor, if I'm having a problem, I can fix the carburetor. You know, I may not make it perfect, but I can make it go down the right there. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, other than that, everything else is pretty much the same, you know. Good stuff. Danny, again, this has been fun. I I think, I think I could talk to you for like five hours and probably get some much better stories yet. Um, But this has been very entertaining. So I I need to, I need, I need to go to the restroom too. (laughs) (laughs) I've been sitting there drinking water. (laughs) Uh, But uh, thanks for coming on. Congratulations again on your season and just your, your body of work, all that you've done on the racetrack and for this industry. Thank you, and thank you for joining us. Best of luck in uh, 2020 and beyond. I appreciate you, Luke. Thanks. Take care, Dad. Talk to you later. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. To make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available, subscribe. And, and, And you can do that on 
Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing uh, our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest uh, edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. As we get closer to racing season, you'll need to start thinking about which of your parts could use a tune-up or replacement. Keep BTE in mind for all of your high-performance transmission needs, torque converters, parts, complete transmissions, whatever you need, BTE does it all. Check them out at bteracing.com or find them on Facebook. If you want some, come and get some, cause I'll be willing to bet that you don't want none. If you want some, come and get some.
Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.